Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Boyle, and this week on the show, I have a very special guest, Liz Quinn. Now, Liz is a master's trained physiotherapist and certified Pilates instructor with over 20 years experience. Now, from Liz's CV, you can tell already that we are going to be geeking out about movement in this podcast and specifically chatting about lower back pain. Now, Liz has worked all over the world delivering evidence-based treatment to clients with complex back pain, and she understands the unique challenges that people with back pain face and the impact that our mental health can have on our pain. So this conversation, we dive into back pain, the causes of back pain, which might not be, you know, what they actually are. Also, we talk about managing pain. How are we going to prevent back pain? What are some of the types of activities and things we can do to manage our back pain and help improve it? So I hope you enjoy this conversation. You know, Liz brings a wealth of knowledge to this conversation. Let's have a listen in. Hi, I'm Kate Boyle, and welcome to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you health information from diet and lifestyle to movement and nutrition. My aim is to bring you bite-sized pieces of information that you can instigate into your everyday life to change your health. everyone. Welcome back to the show. Liz, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Okay. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here too. This is a great chance to speak to you about back pain. Well, it's lovely too, because I don't often have a lot of Aussies on the show and it's nice to just have a time zone where we're on the same time zone and we're not having to do, you know, weird hours and things. So it's a great start. (laughs) So can you share with listeners a little bit about your background and what you do and why we're going to be chatting about back pain today? So I'm a physio. I've been working in the physio field for over 20 years and specifically in back pain and a little bit in neck pain, but but more back pain. And it's been a long journey because how we treat back pain now compared to how we treated it 20 years ago has changed so much. I remember when patients used to come in and see me when I just graduated and I'd I'd be using terms like, oh, gosh, you've got a disc bulge. This is really bad. And I'd get out my little piece of paper and I'd draw what a disc looks like and I'd be like, okay, we've got some damage here and some wear and tear. And I'm sure looking back, I completely freaked that poor person out. (laughs) So we've really changed along the way. But part of that journey, I think, for me has helped in my own back pain recovery as well because I'm a back pain sufferer myself. And so I not only understand the challenges that 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 kind of persistent back pain face, but I also know the evidence-based practice behind it. And the two of those things combined have really encouraged me to work more specifically in the field of low back pain and also more with people who not are just having back pain once and never having it again, but really suffering with back pain that's ongoing and frustrating them. And so that's kind of been my journey over the last 20 years. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about some of the things that I know about back pain to try and help um, your audience today. Yes, well, I know a lot of people can relate to having back pain at some point in their lives. And I myself, even being, you know, a Pilates instructor and know everything I know about the core, you know, in my teenage years being a dancer, I had chronic lower back pain, like to the point where I couldn't dance. Um, and I was I was diagnosed with Sherman's in my lumbar. Now, whether or not, I debate whether or not that's a true diagnosis and that was probably contributing, but I know I had a, a weak pelvic floor at the time. I know that I was, you know, overgripping with my hip flexors and, and not working the muscles, but I also had a lot of stress going on on top of that too you know and over the years throughout pregnancy and had body changing it sometimes crops up and I think a lot of people relate and sort of go they always sort of think back and go but I haven't done any different anything differently why do I have back pain now let's dive in there no it's really challenging people often come to see me and they go I don't get it I I haven't I'm not like increasing my load capacity more I haven't I haven't joined the gym I haven't I just literally bent down the other day to put my shoes on and I haven't been able to get out of bed for a week. They're the patients who I see more often, not the ones who are 
loading their back because they're working in really heavy, heavy manual labour type jobs and their back's getting a lot of load. I'm seeing people who have got like what we call insidious onset pain, pain for really no reason, but it doesn't settle. So they'll have a little flare and then, you know, it might get a little bit better, but then a month later, gosh, it still hurts when they put their shoes on and they're still having problems doing some of those just normal functional tasks that we shouldn't have problems with, loading the dishwasher, putting, um, carrying the laundry basket outside to, to put the laundry out on the clothesline, just simple things, sitting for a while. Just they're, they're so aggravated and they're so frustrated when they come and see me. And they have seen 20 people. They are not generally the people who are not proactive at trying to improve their health. They have seen the people, they've done the massages, they're getting the acupuncture, they're doing all of the work and they're still not getting better. And that can be really confronting. And that's the space that I tend to work most in, in in, in this complicated space of my back is still persistently sore. I don't know why it's hurting. I don't know what to do about it. I've tried everything. Yeah. And I get a lot of those clients too, especially because some of the clients that I've been teaching, I've been teaching for years, so it can flare up. And again, it may not be something physical and we dive into, is there anything emotional going on now in your life? And then they're like, you know, this has been happening. And I'm like, bingo, like, you know, but I think that's an area of back pain that people just don't think about. They just think it's something or they go, I get a lot of people come in and go, oh, my disc has flared up. Oh, my disc is moving. Oh, my, you know, they use this terminology, like things are floating around and changing position too, um, because I think back pain can be confusing. It is. Why don't we break it down a little bit and talk about primarily what the actual two main drivers of back pain are that people aren't aware of. The first one is hypersensitive tissues in your lower back. And when I'm talking about that, I'm not talking about a damaged spine because the majority of people, 95% of people with low back pain, don't have damage in their spine. Disc changes are completely normal. They are age-related changes that we see in the spine. They are not evidence of damage. So we, what happens is we get hypersensitivity within the tissues, which means the pain receptors in our skin and around our joints become really aware, really on. And I often describe this to patients almost like fairy lights have turned on in our back, but they can't figure out how to switch off again. Or we've just stoked a little fire into our back and we just keep putting more logs onto it, but it's having a lot of trouble switching off. Not a lot of time would you ever, and would I ever describe a, a joint sprain, that's what I call them, joint sprains, as actual uh, disc, oh gosh, your disc is really flared up at the moment. That's going to be caused by your disc prolapse because it's actually not true. We don't know. Um, and the, all of the recent evidence suggests that. So our our first kind of, you know, primary driver is hypersensitive hypersensitivity within the tissues of our lower back. Our second primary driver, which most people don't recognise, is our central nervous system. So the way our brain and our spinal cord is processing pain. So what's a really interesting point that I really want to um, to really emphasise to your audience today is that your brain cannot tell the difference between feeling physical pain and feeling emotional pain. The centres of our brain that help to process our pain also process our emotions. So there's neural overlap in that area. And why that's relevant for back pain sufferers is that if you're going through a peak period of stress, anxiety, depression, fatigue, overwhelm, it's very likely that those emotional centers will also activate your pain centers because they're the same thing. Your pain will shoot down this pathway that you already have leading to your hypersensitive tissues and all of a sudden those fairy lights will switch on even a little bit more. So even if we're void, even if we're completely void of tissue damage in our lower back, you can still have pain in your lower back because your emotional centers will be driving that pain through your, through your brain. So those are the two primary main drivers. And I often will put a little circle, write down those drivers, and then you'll probably have 50 more micro drivers on the outside of that, which will be loading too much, sitting too much. Um, they'll all be about kind of your actions and your activities around that, not doing enough, doing too much. Um, and we often work on all of those outside drivers, but knowing your two primary drivers is the most important thing to do. And changing the narrative from being 
I'm damaged, I've got disc injuries, to actually I'm just hypersensitive. And my back's actually going to be okay once I know how to reduce that sensitivity can be really groundbreaking for for a lot of people. Yeah, well, I definitely agree. When I'm working with clients, I often try to get them to change their language because a lot of them believe, you know, they may have had an MRI 15 years ago where it showed that they had a disc bulge and now every time they have back pain, they just link it straight back to that disc bulge. And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, it's not necessarily that. Let's look at the bigger picture here. But people do get very fixated on that as well. Well, they think that's why that, that they think they're damaged. They think someone has told them, and we have to be so careful as professionals to watch the language we use with patients because you could say a one-off sentence. I've had people come in and they've been told something 15 years ago, one-off line, like, gee, your back is so degenerative. Gosh, this is really bad. Someone told me the other day, gosh, she, she was 40 and, and the person who, the doctor who she was speaking to said something along the lines of, you've got a back of an 80-year-old on MRI. And she was devastated. Like that was very hard for her to hear. So one, we have to really watch the language we use, but two, it's not true. Disc bulges are not sign of damage. So we have to just switch this narrative and it will be so empowering for people with back pain to realize that actually they can recover and they will be okay. And to know their drivers as part of that, understanding what's actually driving it and how to to, to look at those drivers and pick which exercises you do because of the driver is, is so um, crucial. So the million-dollar question is then, how do we start to downregulate or try to reduce that hypersensitivity that we may have? So there are two ways. So I do it through both systems. The first um, kind of time that I'm meeting with someone and definitely as part of the program I've got, Desensitization of tissues is actually probably a little bit easier than downregulation of your central nervous system, but both of them take a bit of time. Desensitizing tissues is about introducing really nice movement back into the spine, but through middle range. So we're not doing really like end range movements where we're really stretching those pain receptors and they're kind of alert. We're, we're keeping everything pretty middle range. The strength of the contractions that I work with my patients are really low. So they're kind of about 20% of a maximum contraction. So it's all about just adding some strength and control back to that area, but without causing too much um overload on those pain receptors so you'll have a sore back for two days after you've started doing it so that's always we're trying to just keep this load a little bit um lower so that you might get a little bit of sensitivity while you're doing it but it should stop as soon as you finish the exercises so we combine strength training of say the glutes the adductors um the the back muscles the deep back muscles with a couple of other really important things so the first thing i normally do is i normally take heat packs away from their for my clients and I use ice instead. So most of my clients use heat a lot. So they'll sleep with heat packs, have heat packs at work, lots of heat packs. And I tend to find heat is helpful at making us feel a bit better. And it definitely has a place um, as part of your recovery. But initially for the first two weeks, I normally replace it with ice. Ice is better at dampening down our pain receptors. It's just better at trying to break that little circle kind of circuitry pathway we have in our back. So we do that. Um, and we start a little um, program of micro resting and micro exercise. So micro exercises where you complete these little exercises, they'll take two to three minutes um, at a go, but you do them a couple of times a day. And micro exercise is like a little break, a little break from that kind of circuitry, pain circuitry. So you're getting healthy input into those lower back tissues, but on a regular basis. And then the other thing we start doing is micro resting. So the, the thing that most people do wrong in this case is they load too much. They push and push and push and push all day. They'll wake up with a stiff back. They go to work, their back's sore. They keep going, keep going, keep going. They go in the afternoon, they pick up the kids, they make the dinner, their back's really sore. By the end of the day, they need to have a glass of wine, they take two Nurofen and they pop their heat pack on their back. Like the amount of times I hear that story, it's ridiculous. They're not stopping at any point during that day to unload the tissues. And unloading for a really long period of time is unhelpful. So resting for two days to try and help recover persistent back pain will be useless. But resting for tiny bits, 10 minutes here and there, placing ice on your back during that time can be really helpful at reducing sensitivity through the back. But definitely that load progression, the way that we um, load our back 
has such a vital role in helping to dampen this down because everyone loads too quickly. They get frustrated with their pain. They're sick of it. So they go and do the gym class I've been wanting to do for ages. And then all of a sudden their pain flares and they are in bed for a week. So it's about learning to load the back tissues first so that they can take a little bit of load. They get a little bit heightened as sensitivity increases. You'll feel them while you're moving them. But part of that is this process of actually reducing sensitivity long term. Yeah. Well, that's how I work a lot with my clients. And I love how you said the ice because I actually just had a footballer (laughs) come in uh, the other week and he'd um, sprained his ankle, but a, a severe sprain. And I said, you know, it was still really quite inflamed. And I said, are you you icing this? And he's like, no, I'm putting heat on now. I did the first two days after I put ice on the first two days and now I'm applying heat. And I'm like, no, 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 there's still too much inflammation. Let's just go back for ice. And then I saw him this week and he's like, oh, my, my ankle has been so much better. I have been icing it. So 100%, you know, definitely on board with that too. And I find as well, um, as you were sort of saying, people do overload too much. And I think part of that is frustration because they want to get rid of it and they want to get rid of it now and trying to almost in their mind, it's, you know, sort of digressing to go backwards and, and add in that rest is something that people battle with a lot as well. For sure. And I understand that. But I often say to them that what you're doing is not working. You're putting in a lot of effort here and you've seen lots of people and you're trying so hard, but I think we need to try something different. And we know that the tissues love, they love a bit of ice. Even if you've had this for two years, ice application is still so helpful. They love it. The tissues love to be unloaded just occasionally. They love changing positions. So I start a 40-minute rule with my clients, which means that if you've been sitting or standing in one position for 40 minutes, you need to change that movement. If it's really severe, 20 minutes is as long as you can sit for before you have to move. So they kind of leave their first session understanding that they've got a micro-exercise, regular great input into the back, micro-rest, 40-minute rule, we put ice instead of heat on. And the other thing that I normally start doing is I say to them, can you please stop touching your back? Subconsciously, most people play with their back and they rub it and they stretch it 50 times a day. And they're putting Voltaren gels on and they're putting the heat on and then they're rubbing and they're sitting up really tall at work trying to be in perfect posture. And all of it just works at increasing the intensity of your pain receptor feedback. So all you're doing when you're doing all of that stuff is actually lighting up your pain fibres more. So the best thing to actually do for the first two weeks is take your hands away. Stop touching it. Stop feeding into that pain circuitry. Start doing some gentle movement through the back, ice application, move a bit more and add a little bit of general exercise into your day. If you can go for a 15-minute walk, beautiful. If you're already walking, you keep it up. But that combination of gentle movement with a little bit of really specific muscle education, ice therapy um, and kind of rephrasing some of these unhelpful thinking patterns are a great place to start in terms of desensitizing tissue. And then I've got a whole nother section for central nervous system decent, uh, kind of down training as well. Yeah. Um, but that's just all of the tissue work. And then when you're ready, we can talk about the, the central nervous system too. Well, let's dive into the central nervous system. And I'd like to just ask you about breath first and how you do you highlight with that with your clients at all and where that may play a part. So I normally bring breathing in in the first session. It's really important. There's so much disconnect I see between our brain and our body when we've had pain for a while because our sensitivity of our tissues is so elevated and often also our emotional centres are really elevated. We don't want to even be in our body. Like being in our body sometimes when we have pain is actually really traumatic. So we spend a lot of time just trying to not be in that that space, not feeling our feelings. Um, So part of the breath work that we do is actually just like a little micro-exercise to try and introduce a way to dampen down that overactivity in your central nervous system but in small ways. So the first exercise I normally give my clients is actually just a three-breath pattern. So it's a deep breath in three times in a row but it's done probably four times a day. And it's, it's just a way to start to kind of allow this idea that breath work can actually help because when you start you won't feel any different. You'll do it and you'll be like, I did three breaths, that didn't help me, I feel the same. My back's still bad. (laughs) But this is just part of the process is that we need to 
practice this because it's going to be so alien and foreign for your body to actually practice breath work. And then once you're getting better, we start doing longer breaths. So we'll be doing, say, 10 deep breaths in a row. And then as my clients progress and they're getting better at understanding the benefits of it, sometimes we might even do Wim Hof-like breathing where they'll do their 20 or 30 breaths, one-minute breath hold, and we do that cycle three times. But this is just introducing a way that's an internal way to reduce anxiety that doesn't require us to control our external environment because that's all we really do when we feel anxious is we want everything around us to be well-controlled to dampen down our internal feedback system. But we have to learn internal internal ways to do that. We can't just keep working at trying to make everything externally perfect so we feel good on the inside. So breath pattern is really important and there's lots of different ways I do it. Sometimes we have our hands on our tummy and we're feeling the breath into our tummy. Sometimes I don't do that. Sometimes we're just making it easier, but it's got to be repeatable. Everything I teach is quick It's easy to do. There is no excuses why you can't do it because it takes 30 seconds or a minute. It is so, my idea is that I want the daily habits that I teach you now to be something that you'll be doing in 20 years' time and you'll be self-managing your back because you won't need me anymore because you know exactly what to do. So these micro habits is kind of part of it. So the breathing is the first thing we do. The second thing we do is we rephrase all of our unhelpful thinking patterns. These ideas that we're damaged, my back is stuffed, I'm so degenerative, oh, my goodness, my my arthritis, like all of that we rephrase to simply I'm just hypersensitive and I know what to do now. And just that flip of actually I think I can recover, I think I can be okay is part of that. And we do a fair bit of just rephrasing some of those kind of unhelpful thinking patterns. We um, we look at trying to stay connected to value-related work. And that's really crucial at part of just making us feel generally better. So staying connected to people who energize you, enjoying and doing things that you like to do rather than doing so many things for other people that you're forgetting to do some of those little micro things that make you feel so much better during the day. And that might be five minutes of meditation. We often include meditation as part of this, but we do it pretty gently because some people are a little bit reluctant to start meditation if they haven't tried it before. And especially if their mind's very overactive, sitting with our thinking patterns is pretty awful. So it's just about dipping our toe into some of these central nervous system down training activities and see which one resonates for you. Um, another thing that we often do is cold therapy. So I might be recommending that the clients have a 30-second to 60-second cold shower at the end of their normal shower. A bit nasty to recommend that now in the middle of winter, well, coming into winter. But um, all these things are just little tools that we start to practice that even though they're only a 1% habit will exponentially increase to being an 80% habit. Um, outcome when we do them often enough yeah well that's what we talk about on here so much that if you can just add in those little things but consistently over time that's when you're going to see the results the the one-off class or the one-off treatment isn't going to make the difference in the long run no it's not and and I think that's what's so good about understanding how important how helpful those micro habits can be because they do actually make a significant, substantial difference. But you've just got to practice them. And the more you practice them when you're well and your back's not too bad and you're not emotionally driven, the more effective they will be when you actually need them. A lot of my um, clients will often say to me, oh, I've been a bit bad with my exercises, but my back got really sore, so I got straight back into them. And I'm (laughs) like, oh, that's good. Like, I'm really happy that you're doing that. But if you practice your central nervous system exercises, if you practice your desensitizing exercises for your back when you're feeling well, they will be 100% more effective when you're not doing well. Um, and one of the things I want to add into that I often speak to clients about is that if you're really worried, if your back's really sensitized and you can't even go for a 10-minute walk, visualization strategies are so powerful at helping to improve our ability to to load our back but without actually having to do it so i might recommend that a client who's really nervous about moving again does five minutes of visualization practice and it's called priming your brain for movement and it's basically where you visualize 
whatever it is that's really troubling you, it might be going for a walk outside, um, it might be that you want to go for a ride but you can't and you visualise every aspect of that exercise, the sun on your back, the sound around you, but you visualise your body feeling well. You visualise that it's it's a really pleasant and enjoyable experience for you. And those visualisation practices can be so powerful at actually helping to desensitise your tissues without actually doing um, the task itself. There's this really interesting study that was done at the Cleveland, um, Cleveland Clinic Foundation where they asked participants to visualise flexing, moving their little finger, but not move it. They just visualised it. So for 15 minutes a day, five days a week, for 12 weeks, they visualised flexing their finger. At the end of the study, they were 35% stronger in their little finger than they were before they started and they hadn't done any muscle training. So using those visualisation pathways with people who are finding loading strategies really hard because they're very sensitive can be really helpful too. Yeah, well, that's pretty amazing. I know they do a lot of the visualization techniques with athletes, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially if they're injured and they can't, you know, get back into their training and they've got to have time off, but they use that a lot so that they don't lose as much of their strength, you know, while they're off. Yeah, totally. And when I see a client for the first time, you know, because I'm asking them to say contract their glutes or contract their um, bum muscles at 20%, it's actually really hard to do that if you haven't done that before. So you have to really visualise that contraction happening and that is also helpful. So that pathway of thinking about your body, connecting to parts of your body that maybe you've been ignoring subconsciously because it's painful can be so helpful at just starting this journey of getting your body moving and your mind feeling better and, and recovering from what can be just so de- debilitating. Hi everyone, I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that you can download a free 15-minute core Pilates workout that I've designed especially for you to work your entire body and your core, including your pelvic floor and deep layer of abdominals to really build strength, stability and mobility. This is a nice quick workout you can fit into your day. It's definitely 100% doable. You don't need any equipment to do it and I guarantee once you finish your 15 minutes of Pilates, you will feel stronger, more energized, taller, and really joyful and happy for moving your body and getting those endorphins moving. So don't forget, head on over to the show notes and download that free core workout and try some Pilates with me. I can't wait to see you on your mat. Yeah, well, as you sort of said, all those, you know, things talking about connecting to your breath and, you know, potentially doing meditation and and building that body awareness will make it easier in the long run. But as you said, you know, I'll get clients to come in and I'll be like, okay, squeeze your glute. And they're like, I can't find it. Like I, I can't, you know, and that's where, you know, either the visualization or sometimes it might be a tactile feedback or something can help them get that connection. But that can be a really, you know, hard thing to find when you're first starting out. It does. And I always say to my clients, you probably will need four weeks to really refrain this. And it might be 12 weeks before you actually notice that you're, you're feeling that pathway is not requiring so much of your mental time when you're doing it but very quickly bodies are resilient you know just you I often say your your back and your body is doing everything they can to help you where we're really harsh in our body when we're feeling in pain because we're like what are you doing wrong why are you doing this to me like I'm I'm suffering here and this sucks whereas really it's actually your body's doing its best possible job at holding you together right now through a really difficult, challenging time. So first of all, let's look at ourselves with a bit of kindness because it's really, really hard. And secondly, all of those tight muscles that you feel everywhere in your body is a protective response to try and provide you with a more stable platform to move. It's not tight because they're there and they shouldn't be. They're one of those peripheral drivers. You know, all of those tight muscles that people come in with are protective and they often need to be down-trained. So if someone comes in to see me and they're tight everywhere and really rigid, 
and their back's really tight and they're sitting up really tall and they're not flexing their back when they bend forward. That I'm often like, okay, we're not even really going to be doing any muscle re-education with you. We're just going to calm your system down. So I might look more at central nervous system down training with them than I would muscle re-education because they probably just need to calm down first through their body. But um, I just really, it's really important. I want I want listeners to understand, please be kind to yourself. Your body is not faulty and it can actually recover beautifully if you just give it space to do that um, without forcing it and wanting it to be better, so not allowing that load progression to happen properly. And probably at some point I'd love to talk a bit about that load progression um, just a bit more so people understand what that means a bit more clearly. Yeah, well, I will dive into that next. But on this topic here, I do want to ask if you've got that client that comes in and they are really tight and they, in their mind, they, you know, they're thinking that the tightness is the back pain. That's what's causing the back pain. So they go off and they continually have massages or chiro adjustments or osteopath releases. And how do you work with that client? Yeah. Um, well, that's every client, really. <laughs> um, it's really about, first of all, I want. I always want to build rapport with my clients so they understand that I am, uh, I really understand the processes going through and I also understand how difficult it is. So the, the primary thing that they have to understand is that the tight muscles is not the problem. Sure, they might get some pain occasionally because their muscles are tight. But tight muscles are never with persistent lower back pain ever the problem. The problem is always deeper. It's always a deeper problem where we're looking at just complete joint hypersensitivity and central nervous system overactivity. So I often say to clients, you know, just think of those tight muscles as a more of a superficial protector. You've got your vertebral bodies on the inside and they're kind of like building blocks. And your, your outside muscles have recognised that something isn't right here. And so they have switched on in an attempt to try and help to provide you with a more stable pelvis and back so you can walk around this world and do what you need to do. But if you spend all of your hours and your time stretching your glutes and your hamstrings, getting massage on your back, and your pain pathway is not changing, you haven't gone deep enough into understanding your drivers properly. You're looking really superficially at it. So often when I explain the processes behind that and they start doing the strengthening program and they start feeling better, you know, that's great because we've got them on board. But the first, often I, I try really hard to, to, to flick the idea that when I feel tight to get relief, I should stretch. Because it's my belief when we feel tight and we've got persistent pain, we should strengthen. So the strengthening component, squeezing your glutes, getting a little adductor squeeze, doing some exercises that really gently activate muscles around the area will be so much more effective than being in a pattern of heat, stretch, massage, heat, stretch, massage. Yay! <laughs> I have all my clients listening into this. <laughs> That's good. All right, so let's segue back to progressive load then. Okay. So where we go wrong when we're loading is that we don't realise that we're actually really weak. And I'm sure so many people can um, can understand this. They stop bending, but they don't realise they are. So if there's something on the floor, they might just pick it up with a straight back. They go down onto their knees, pick it up. Or if they're loading the dishwasher, they put their weight onto one hand and they're loading the dishwasher, but they're not actually bending their back. And then they're lifting the washing basket, but they're bracing really strongly. Everything's on. And progressively what happens when we're trying to adapt our, our lifestyle to reducing how much load is in our back because when we load it hurts. Of course it hurts because our, our body's weak and it's sensitised, is that you'll keep getting weaker. The less you flex your spine, the weaker you will get. And then, of course, if you want to go and do something that involves flexion like gardening, well, you're going to be in bed for a week because your back's so sore. So understanding that you've actually got to start flexing your spine but it's just got to be done safely. So we do tiny little practices where perhaps I might say 
let's practice this week flexing when you pack unpack the dishwasher in the morning. So it might just mean we do the top shelf first, but how would someone who doesn't have back pain unpack a, a dishwasher? Would they flex their back and not think about it or do they hold themselves really stiff? We want to try and mimic what people do who don't have back pain because that's what starts to tell your body that you're actually safe, you're not traumatised, we don't have to keep protecting the whole time. So we do, We or we, I might say, for the rest of the week, I want you, if you see something on the ground, three times in, in one day you bend down to pick it, pick it up. You're not going to kneel down to get it. And just by doing this, you're actually increasing the strength of your spine because flexion was never the problem. Flexing our spine has never been the primary driver of our pain. It just sensitizes it because when our back is sore, flexion hurts. But it's not the reason why we have back pain. And holding ourselves stiff in extension will only weaken your spine. So you need to do these really small amounts of loading first before you try and do four hours in the garden. Um, and that is kind of, and that takes a couple of, you know, weeks to do that. But that is always the way that you should be thinking is that don't avoid flexion long term. Of course, if you're having a really acute flare, don't flex because it will hurt, but only for a couple of days and then slowly start to flex again because flexion is not the problem with back pain. Yeah. Oh, I love that because I think that's what most people go to straight off. They do just avoid the function straight away or they get someone else to pick everything up off the floor for them or, you know, they they tell people, oh, no, I can't, you know, I can't play with my grandkids because I, I can't get on the floor because it's too much for my back. So I know I hear that a lot and I know with my clients that I start looking at their basic movement patterns too. So how are they sitting down and how are they getting up from sitting and, you know, how are they basically moving around and working in that sort of safe range that they feel safe with and then expanding on that as they get more comfortable? And I think probably, I mean, that's perfect. It's exactly um, a great way to go. And I think if we could just quickly talk about sitting posture, everyone is in a mess with sitting. It is these lumbar supports and this idea that we're supposed to be really upright when we sit are creating uh, just a huge crisis of back pain sufferers that don't need to have sore backs. The, the emphasis should be on movement. You know, of course, some of us have to sit for 10 hours a day and that's just your job and that's how it goes. So trying to sit really tall and perfectly into almost extension of our backs because that's where they all go is so unhelpful because it's just going to load those sensitive structures. Take out your lumbar supports, put your bottom at the back of the chair and relax your spine a bit more, but take regular breaks. Set your 40-minute rule on your computer and move as often as you can because it's the movement that helps. It's not sitting perfectly and stiffly that makes a big difference to our pain. So it would be great if... Um, yeah, if your listeners start to just think about how they're sitting and whether maybe it's actually helpful or not. Well, I think too, because they've said sitting is the new smoking, that a lot of people are like, oh, now I've got to really work on my, you know, seated posture, which, you know, as you said, working on it is great, but what's more important is keeping that movement going throughout the day. You know, like movement is the is really the key. Like if we're looking at just the basics, if you didn't have access to a pain program, if you could do, you couldn't access a, a, a health professional, if you expose yourself to a little bit of walking, to good nutrition, to recovering your sleeping patterns and to doing things that, that fill your cup up, doing value-based activities that make you feel good, you are already half the way on your journey. That's even without being seen anyone. So it's just, there are so many amazing things that you can do during the day that don't even require the input and expensive, you know, um, costly input of, of lots of health professionals that you can do on your own that will not only downregulate your central nervous system but will help to restore the function of the tissues in your back. Yeah, agree. And I ha we have to talk about pain medication <laughs> as part of this topic I think because a lot of people will start to get back pain they'll be like I can't do a lot of movement because I'm in pain so I'm going to go to the painkillers or I'm going to go to anti-inflammatories and do a course of those 
where do you stand on these when it comes to the back? Well, I should probably say just a quick disclaimer, you know, professionally our scope of practice as physios is not to recommend to my clients what medications they should be on. We, I really leave that to the GPs. But if we were talking historically what I've looked at over the last 20 years, if you are a persistent back pain sufferer, you will find the use of anti-inflammatories and Panadol and certainly opioid medication generally unhelpful because we're not dealing with a huge amount of inflammation at any point when we've got persistent pain. You'll find that the pain pathways will not really be changed because the circuitry in your brain is not being altered by taking Panadol. You can't calm down your emotional centres, which might be driving 50% of your pain by taking two Panadol at night time. And I hear it so often when people come in, I'm like, so tell me about the medication that you take. And they'll be like, well, I take kind of Panadol and Nurofen and I might take that like I'll probably take it, uh, you know, every second day and then if it's really bad I'll take it on those days and then I'll have it, I won't have it for a week and then I'll take it again. It's the most unhelpful way and so unsafe to medicate like that long term because it's actually not doing anything. And if anything, probably it's creating more harm in your pain circuits. And probably just a, a note, if you are suffering with really severe acute pain, of course there is space there for medication. That's what it's there for. So if, say, your pain's so bad that you've had to go to hospital for a couple of days to get, get some management, it's likely that they will put you on some type of opioid medication to help you um, for a couple of days. But you must be aware that once those two days or three days have, are finished, it is in your best interest to make sure that you are not taking that medication long-term because the, the outcome of taking long-term medication, particularly the strong pain type medication, is very adverse for pain sufferers. And if anything, it will increase your pain circuitry, not reduce it. So, yeah. Well, I think it's almost that band-aid sort of effect, isn't it, in the sense that it's blocking pain for now, but it's not addressing what caused the pain in the first place. So it is going to keep repeating itself unless you change that original pattern. That's true. And it won't even, you know, if taking a couple of neurofin, if you don't have an inflammatory process there, it it's basically you might as well just have two, I don't know, Mentos. Like honestly, I'm just pretty sure it's not going to be helping. So, but of course, if you're in acute stages of pain and you need Therapeutic assistance, of course, you know, that's what it's there for. But you've just got to be very aware that once that settles down, and even if you're having very severe pain, really doesn't indicate more trauma or more damage. It just means that you're having a really bad bout of severe pain and you'll need some assistance during that time. So if people are listening in and they're thinking, okay, this is definitely me and I need to start somewhere, where what's the first thing that people should start with? I probably think the quickest and easiest way is just 40-minute rule. Put a little alert up on your phone and computer that's like, okay, great, 40 minutes has come up, I need to hop up. I want you to change your heat for ice. I want you to give ice a try. Make sure you wrap it in a towel so that you don't cause any ice burns. But I want you to um, give ice a little go, go. And I think just expose yourself if you can to a little bit more gentle exercise. So it might just be walking. Walking is probably my favourite because it's great for the tissues. It's pretty unloading and it desensitises the tissues as well as it's great for our mental health. So I probably choose that. But some of those simple things, 40-minute rule changing ice instead of heat and starting a little walking program can be really, really helpful. Yeah, I love those. I pretty much say all of those to my clients and then I also tell them to to stop avoiding movements if they can. Like, you know, the functional movements like bending down and reaching up and, you know, these are things that we need to do in everyday life and if we keep avoiding them, like you said earlier, we're not going to be able to do them or, you know, it will cause a flare-up as such. So try to get back to incorporating as many of those as you feel comfortable with and then we work on the other movements that they might not be comfortable with and then start to gradually build it in. It's perfect. Like load progression is the primary thing people do wrong and it's why everyone comes unstuck. They haven't done the loading at home. They haven't done those little things you like you're talking about, reaching up into the pantry to get something high because they're afraid it might hurt their back or bending down to pick something off the floor. They haven't done that bit. 
So when they then go out and try and load more aggressively, it, it just turns into a total perfect storm of pain and chaos in our mind because it's not getting better. The load progression is so important and it's always where people get unstuck. Yeah. Yep. And before we wrap up the podcast, I always ask our guests that if listeners are listening in and they want to just as soon as we they finish listening, go off and instigate one thing straight away, what would it be? <sighs> Oh dear. I think the most important thing I want people to to get from today's chat is that you need to know your drivers. If you're spending all this time and energy working on the outside drivers, massaging tight muscles, getting acupuncture because your muscles feel tight, stretching your tight muscles, but you're not actually understanding whether you've got a central nervous system activator here, you're, you will probably always be suffering with some form of ongoing pain that will just frustrate you to no end. So I want you to take this chat and just think, actually, well, hang on, do I have two drivers going on here? Do I have a, have I had a stressful event lately? And then all of a sudden my back two weeks later is really sore. And maybe if that's the case, could we pop those two things together and instead of always putting the emphasis on stretching and thinking that you're damaged in your back, Maybe you start to recognize the impact that your anxiety and stress is having on your pain and start doing things to improve that. Start trying to see if you can reduce that level of anxiety in your body rather than always having this narrative that my back is so damaged, it just, you know, it needs so much attention. Just really know your drivers is what I would recommend. Yeah. And if you are trying to identify your drivers, maybe this is more from like a practitioner point of view. So mm. you have a client that you know that there are other drivers, yeah. but they're not really, maybe they're not willing or mm. they're not ready to address those drivers. What can you do? Sometimes I don't even bring up mental health in the chat. I will be very aware that someone has got a really strong a kind of overactive system that's probably driven through anxiety but I can read in that moment that that is not the time to say because probably someone along the time has told them this pain's in your head and that has been so hurtful for them because it almost makes like it's imagined so I will just pick and choose where I start and for some people I might just start totally just with muscle re-ed and we do some gentle strengthening. We look at about just doing a little bit more walking. But then others might come in and they hate exercise. I can tell, like, I can't go there with them. I will not be recommending exercise for the first three months. But in that moment, I might be going, okay, well, what, what fills their bucket up? What How can I connect them to some type of recovery process? But doing things that they enjoy because we know that when you do ex- well, well, this is an exercise related example. But if you do exercise that you enjoy, you'll release a, a factor called BDNF higher, and it means that you'll actually get better mood, better concentration. So I always want to try and make sure whatever I'm asking that person to do, they're already engaged in that process a little bit. So maybe just watch that you're not all of a sudden to someone who's really suffering with anxiety, and they sit in and go, "Oh gosh, look at you." You're really a mess here. Like this is the problem. I think we've always got to be gentle, come at people with great empathy and kindness and understand that they're doing their very best. Um, and I always just, I pick from the 50 tool, you know, tools in the toolkit I have and I will just pick a couple that I think we can start with and, and build rapport with that person so that they feel like they can trust you and you know what you're doing and it's a team approach. I'm always saying to my clients, it's you and me doing this together. You are not on your own. So I I think, you know, part of that is just um, probably experience and getting good at understanding and judging what people need in the moment. But, um, yeah, hopefully I've answered that question. Yeah, well, I think to having and working with someone that you can build that rapport with is really important because you need to feel safe in, you know, that environment if you are going to be, you know, exploring areas that maybe you haven't thought about or even going back into movements that, you know, you're a bit fearful of, really trying to find that practitioner that is going to support you in that journey um, and validate your feelings, you know, what you're feeling and your pain is important too because I do get a lot of um, clients that do come to see me and they have seen other people and there has been issues with that and then there's almost like a bit of a block or a wall 
that goes up and then that really hinders their progress. Totally. I've had so many people say to me over the years, they come in and they go, just want to be honest with you, I don't have much luck with physios. I find physios don't help me, okay, just so you know. And I'm always like, okay, (laughs) okay, I understand that. You know, a lot of people have been told you've just got to push through it. You're not pushing hard enough. You're not trying hard enough. Are you doing your exercises, like really questioning their integrity and where they are actually trying really hard and they're tired? So I think, yeah, we have to be very careful um, as health professionals the way that we talk and speak to patients because it, it will affect their pain journey for sure. And if I can add just one thing in really quickly, Kate, which I think is important, if any of your audience is suffering back pain for the first time, or their back pain is new, they must go and get their back assessed by a physio or a GP. 95% of people who have got a sore lower back that's persisting will have non-specific low back pain like what we've been talking about today. But there is a very small percentage of people that won't. There's 1% of, of, of the population that will have serious pathology. So it's just very important that people understand if it's the first ever bout of back pain or their back pain is new, they must go and get that assessed. Yeah, I think that's very important too. Um, and people do tend to hold off on that because, you know, they're like, it's another appointment and it's another bother. Um, but, you know, I have had, um, you know, different stories and things where there has been a client that has, you know, had started having back pain and they go off and it's actually their gallbladder or, you know, something, it could be something else as well. So, yeah, it's definitely really important. Yeah, I think so. And I just, yeah, I just don't ignore your pain if it's new and if it's different. Now, where can listeners reach out, connect with you and find out more about your program as well? So if they want to, if this conversation has resonated with them today, if they want to head to remedyrehab.com.au, they can find my back pain program. I have a 10-week totally online back pain program where people can go through this process, the, the kind of central nervous system and the desensitizing of the tissues, plus so much more, all from the comfort of their home, which is really great. Otherwise, they can find me on Instagram as well at underscore remedy underscore rehab underscore. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Liz, I know this conversation is going to help so many people out there. Um, but yes, it's been a great conversation and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. That's great. Thanks for listening into the podcast. Please hit subscribe to be updated for each time we release a new podcast.